Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. The power of a biblical whatever. Learning to think and live in light of what is true. To be a person who thinks about whatever is honorable, it's the kind of attitude that doesn't get rattled easily. God then even reveals to us a standard of right and wrong. Justice is core to what God's gonna label a healthy attitude. That grace comes through God's justice, amen? So there's no excuse in a church like ours that each of us shouldn't have an area. What's yours? Father God, uh, throughout this entire week, uh, many of us have been nudged and jarred off-center when it comes to our attitude. It's so easy to happen in this fallen world that we're supposed to be in, but not of. And so I pray that as we open your book now to this one verse that we're allowing to speak through the power of your spirit to our minds and our hearts in order to help our attitude be very much in line with what you want it to be. God, would you jar us back to the center now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So as you look up on your monitors, I want to ask you a lead-in question. It's not a trick question, it's very real. What do ivory soap, organic food, Mother Teresa, and a Lamborghini all have in common? I bet you didn't think that they had some things in common. They do. And when you think about it, they are all pure in their own right. Uh, ivory soap. Many of you grew up with this. 99 and 44 one-hundredths pure. So pure that it floats. Organic food, no additives, no preservatives, no chemicals, no taste. It's pure, 100%. (laughs) Mother Teresa, uh, when she was alive, you couldn't get much more pure than her, a lady who devoted her entire life to serving the poor in the slums of Calcutta. And then I'm a sports car guy, so a Lamborghini is a pure sports car, unlike a Honda Civic with a rear spoiler on it. And so... (laughs) And I could go on and on. You and I use this word pure in our daily talk all the time. Think of how many times you use the word pure. You talk about pure water, pure air. You're looking at a mountain and you say it's pure beauty. You talk about the fact that maybe at times you have pure motive, pure thoughts. You listen to pure sound on your Bose stereo. (laughs) We use this word all the time in our daily language. And so what I need us to wrestle with as we dive into the deep end of this topic of purity today is what do you think we actually mean when we use the word pure? What are we getting at? I mean, it's a very positive word when you think about it. We hardly ever use it negatively. In fact, the only time we ever use it negatively is when we put an I-M in front of it, impure or something like that. No, pure is really our friend, but what in essence are we trying to get at when we use this word? And the reason that it's important for you and I to drill down and wrestle with the meaning and implications of this word pure today is because as we continue in our series on attitude here at our church, we get to this fourth of eight attitudes that are found in Philippians 4 verse 8, and here is what it says. Look up on your monitors. It says, whatever is pure, think about these things. Finally, brothers, whatever is pure, Think about these things. So whatever pure is, whatever this means, at the very least, it's to be a key part of our attitude on a daily basis as we follow God through Christ. 
So I want to do two things in our time remaining this morning. I want, to, I want to talk about pure and what it means to be pure. And to do this, I'm going to talk to you about the concept behind purity, what the Bible says about this concept of purity. And then once we're all on the same page with that, I'm going to give you the very straightforward, but I believe profound attitude that needs to come when you and I are thinking whatever is pure. So first, let's all rally around the concept behind the Bible's use of this word pure, and I'm going to be real technical as I start off here, but you'll see where I'm going with this in a minute, because here's the concept, and that is that the word means unstained, without defect, not mixed together. This is actually what it means both in the Greek, as you're going to see in a second here, as well as in the English, unstained, without defect, not mixed together. So this is a very fascinating word that the Bible uses here in Philippians 4, verse 8, to drive home this fourth attitude, that of purity or holiness. It's the Greek word hognos. And the reason that it's important you know that it's the Greek word hognos is because it's a cousin to the main word for holiness found in the Bible, hagios, that is used some 230 times in the New Testament, some 800 times in the Greek version of the Old Testament. It's a very, very common word, and you've all heard it, holiness. But this word hognos, used here in Philippians 4, get this, is only used about eight times in the New Testament, and then even less, just a handful of times, in the Old Testament. And so it's not translated holy, it's translated pure, or as you're going to see in a few minutes here, even innocent. Uh, The Greeks invented this word uh, during the New Testament era because the Greeks invented the Greek language, and uh, it was used to describe initially the gods, the Greek gods. It was used to refer to religious awe and to the gods as those who were lacking defects. Uh, Eventually, it was used to describe human beings in the Greek culture, those who had similar traits of the gods, those who were morally pure, and even sexually pure, unstained, without defect, not mixed together with, say, impure things. It even made its way eventually to the political and cultural realms of the Greek culture when it was used to describe, say, somebody in Greek political office who was blamelessly discharging the duties of the office, not veering from the job description. You starting to get the idea? Unstained, without defect. The concept behind this word is one of wholeness and one of integrity, something that is not complicated or compromised, diminished from its intended state or purpose, whether it be moral purity or even a Greek political office. The concept is about something that is untouched, undiminished, unstained from its intended state or purpose or usage. Before we even apply it in its New Testament setting, you got to grasp the concept here behind this word. It's something that has been held together from its original good and even pure purpose. So you notice I brought a football up here, and some of you say, you're going to pick on the Patriots again. Yes, we're not done with them quite yet. And... Uh, and, and I'm kind of kidding, because I, I really haven't gotten any emails yet from Patriot fans, which I'm thankful for, and, and they could gloat because they won the Super Bowl. And as many of you might remember, there was a, a slight scandal before the uh, Super Bowl when the Patriots played the Colts in, in one of the championship games, and, um, 
And during that game, the, the Patriots provided 12 balls for the game, and they found after the game that 11 out of the 12 balls were underinflated. So they've called this slight scandal Deflategate. And uh, kinda, I, I kind of like that, and Deflategate. And again, not passing judgment on the Patriots because they claimed that they didn't do anything wrong and they didn't know anything about this. Um, I found during this whole thing, uh, thinking about this whole idea of purity, and quite frankly, what a great illustration this is. Again, not picking on the Patriots, but just the idea of this, it's a good definition of what purity is. Because see, here's what this was about. Um, In the NFL, if you submit a football to be played in the NFL game, which is arguably the best game that's ever going to happen in football, an NFL game, it needs to be inflated to 12 and a half to 13 and a half pounds per square inch. For our purposes this morning, that would be a pure football. That would be its intended usage or purpose. And anything that veers from that is no longer pure doesn't mean it's necessarily or completely bad. It just means that it's less than, and so it's no longer the pure intended purpose or usage. 12 and a half to 13 and a half pounds per square inch. And as many of I know, many of us know, the big hoopla around the whole Patriots thing is that 11 of the 12 footballs they found were less than two pounds per square inch less than the 12 and a half to 13 pounds. So they had been deflated. And the argument was they did that so that they could grip the ball better and thus win the game. I think that's an amazing illustration actually there of this whole idea of purity. That really the big hoopla was is that it was no longer a pure football, at least in its intended purpose or usage. And guys, that's the general concept behind this word pure, hognos. It's something that had an original purpose and intended use, and you're not to veer from that morally or otherwise. Now, what's most revealing is that by the time this word makes its way to the writing of the New Testament, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the New Testament uses this word, now don't miss this, in two overriding areas of life, and that is our conduct and our relationality before God. Very, very interesting. Uh, The New Testament almost exclusively, in fact, does exclusively, use this word hognos in the eight times that it appears, either in light of our conduct and behavior as followers of Jesus or in how we relate to each other. Let me show you what I mean. In talking to wives in the New Testament period, it says this in 1 Peter 3, verses 1 and 2. It says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure hognos conduct. So obviously here, this word is being used in light of behavior, morality, conduct. Here saying that marriage might go better uh, if there is good conduct. But then Paul addresses his young protege, Timothy, using this same word and concept, and he says this in 1 Timothy 5.22, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself, say it with me, pure. So interesting, same word used again in light of conduct. Don't engage in the sin of others around you, but keep your conduct pure. It's intended purpose as a follower of Jesus. 
So clearly, this word is used here and in a couple other places in light of our conduct, to have a moral life that is undiminished from the purpose for which God saved us, and that's to be salt and light, even in our behavior. But then, using this same word and concept, the New Testament writers apply this, interestingly, in light of our relationships. And this is very important for you to see, because I'm going to submit to you in a few moments that most Christians do not equate holiness with their relationships. Holiness with the way that they treat others on a daily basis. But look at 2 Corinthians 7, verses 5 through 11. Paul says, even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, and we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. Pause right there. We haven't gotten to the word hognos yet, uh, pure, but do you notice the relational context of this passage here? Give me a head nod that you all see that. He's not talking about conduct here. He's talking about relationality and comfort and Titus coming and rejoicing. Now read on. Verse 8, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Although I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. Now here it is. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent, pure, hognos in the matter. So don't miss what's going on here, guys. Paul is thankful for the purity, the innocence of the Corinthians in this area, but it's not a purity in the context here. That's why I read all these verses having to do with moral conduct, but of profound relationality, the way they related to him and responded to him on a personal level. You see, James would say the same thing about this word and concept when he used it in James 3.17 and talking about wisdom. Look up here on your monitors. He says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, hognos, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. I don't know about you guys, but these are all relational terms being talked about here and how we treat each other. And hognos is the one that leads them here. And then if you're still not convinced, one more verse, 1 Peter 1 verse 22 He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a, say it with me, pure heart. So there it is. It's clear as the noonday sun. You and I, in our relationality and our love and our treatment of others with wisdom and whatever, are to do so in a pure way. And our holiness is tied into this. And so here's the deal. When you and I think holy or think purity, we are to do so with two simultaneous realities in mind. 
that of our moral conduct as followers of Jesus in a fallen and decadent world, and then also our relational interactions, how and in what ways we are interacting with those around us and whether we're putting Christ on display or not in the way that we relate. This is the concept of purity, that of being undiminished, unstained, without defect, maintaining our intended purpose or state of being. But then the New Testament, in a life-giving way, says now laser beam that thing on your conduct and laser beam that thing on your relationships. And now you have an attitude that is worthy of a follower of Jesus. And so as we go back to Philippians 4.8, and it tells us that one of our core attitudes is to think about whatever is pure. Now, with this background, we're ready to state the attitude as it is to be stated. And it's this. We are to think every day, with God, I will be good and I will relate well. Imagine that. Some of you are terrified of this right now. You're thinking, man, this is legalistic. It's heavy. Yeah, it is heavy. I'm going to show you in a minute it's not legalistic, but, but it is heavy. Imagine waking up every day, and as you look to God and submit your day to him, having as your attitude saying, God, with you today, I will be good <laughs> as best I can. In the power of your Holy Spirit, I'm going to be good so I can be salt and light for those around me so they might see Jesus in me. And guess what, God? I'm going to relate well as best I can to those around me because I understand that purity is on the line because this is what it means to think whatever is pure. I want you to ponder for a moment uh, this whole attitude that would have on its radar to be good. Let's be clear, not just to do good as we saw last week when we looked at whatever is just, but to be good in our daily conduct as followers of Jesus. Because here's what I've noticed, and, and some of you need to dial into this right now, and that is that Christians are not always known as being good in their conduct. Amen? We're really not. And the catch-22 is that we should be, and we talk a big game, because we're like carriers of this thing called righteousness and morality that the Bible talks about, but we fail so many times, and especially in our culture today where, I mean, talk is cheap, I, we, we cut a lot of corners as the world and God look on. And so I would submit to you that though hard to face, this is a needed and potent attitude for you and I who claim to be followers of Jesus. To the attitude says, I'm going to be good. And I'm going to show you in a second here, by the power of the Holy Spirit, there's no excuse. You can. It's just hard. Uh, tax time is coming up. Let's talk about taxes for a minute. You guys want to do that? I read an article this week on CNBC and then another one in Forbes because I was doing a little bit of research now that tax time is coming up on, on this idea of cheating on your taxes. I know none of you will relate to this, but let's talk about it just for a minute here. Uh, this article on CNBC and again in Forbes uh, noted that the IRS Oversight Board annual taxpayer survey finds, and this is encouraging, that 86% of Americans believe it is not acceptable to cheat on your taxes. 86%. That, that's a very high number. Uh, even better, 95% of Americans completely agree that it's every American civic duty to pay taxes. So those are good things. 
the vast majority of Americans believe, that, though you might not like certain aspects of the tax system, that in general it's something we need to do to have the kind of country we have and that cheating on them, whether you like or not, is not a good thing. And by the way, that's eminently biblical. Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And so when we look on our dollar bill, we give to George Washington what is George Washington's. That's the, the idea today. But here's where it gets dicey. In 2006, uh, this article estimated by the IRS that there was $385 billion owed that was not given to the IRS. $385 billion. Forbes magazine, uh, same year, said that they thought it was more closer to $450 billion that people did not give in taxes that they knew that they owed. A conservative estimate is that this is at least 1.6 million individuals involved in this. So you got the majority of people that say, yes, we should pay taxes, but then you got arguably a million and a half and upwards of $450 billion not being paid. There's obviously a disconnect here. And when I read that this week, you know what my immediate thought was as a pastor? I thought, I wonder how many Christians are a part of the 1.6 million. I wonder how many Christians are a part of that $450 billion not given. Because see, here's what I know. It's really easy to cut corners at tax time. It really is. God has an amazing sense of humor. It actually uh, confronted me this week. I was putting together all my tax materials for the accountant that I uh, use, and I was putting together all my giving receipts. This is a true story. And, and I, it happened on Thursday. And, and, and I got this one giving receipt that I looked at from last year, and, and it was thanking me for $1,000 given to this mission organization. And I am involved with this mission organization, but I remember thinking when I looked at this receipt, I don't remember writing a check for $1,000 to them. And I can promise you, if I gave 10 $100 bills to anybody, I'd remember that. And so I, I thought, I, I, I wonder what that's about. And I got to tell you, my initial thought, and this is why I know it's so easy to fudge here, my initial thought was, hey, don't argue. I got a letter that says I gave it. I mean, whether you remember it or not, that's not the issue. I got a letter and I gave the money. But then I thought to myself, you know, organizations can make mistakes and even, and this is happening sometimes from ADF, I'll get letters sometimes, Alliance Defense Fund here at the church thanking me for the donation I gave, but it was actually the church that gave it, and they're thanking me. And so I thought maybe it's one of those, and obviously I don't get a tax write-off for that. And so I thought to myself, you know, I, I need to take the high road here. And so I went back on my, my bank account. You ever done this? And I went all the way back, you know, all to the statements last April, and I looked at it, and sure enough, I did write a check. For, uh, to this mission organization. And then, as happens to us, it all came back to me, okay, yeah, that's why, and this was the need, and, and I was kind of thankful for that, and I included it in the stuff to give to the tax guy. But I was amazed that as a pastor, more so as a Christian, how my initial thought was, maybe I just let this go. Maybe I just don't run this down. I got the letter, and no one's going to argue with the letter. No one will ever know but who. God. There's an amazing study uh, done a little while back. I, I laughed out loud when I read about this. This is true. It was done in 2006, a study of university faculty lounge, uh, done in a university faculty lounge that offered coffee and tea to the professors 
that for years was on an unsupervised honor system. We all know what that's about. So you have the coffee pot and, and that, and then there's a box that you're supposed to put the money in for when you take coffee and tea. And for years at this university lounge, it was done this way. In 2006, the psychology department decided that they were going to run an experiment. And so what they decided to do was for 10 weeks at a time, they put a poster above the box that you're supposed to put money into, and they switched the poster each week to one of two posters. The first poster was one of a beautiful field with a lot of flowers, just a nature scene, and they had it up there for one week. But the second poster the next week was one of two big eyes watching you. <laughs> it's a true story. And they decided to see what would happen with the money going into the till on those weeks. And so each week for 10 weeks, they would alternate it. And I quote, people paid almost three times more money on the eyes weeks than they did on the flowers weeks. Isn't that interesting? And it's just a poster. I mean, a guy like me would go, hey, it's a poster, you know? I mean, it's not really God's eyes, but it is, right? God is really watching. And at times, other people are watching. And that's the point. I'm not trying to make us feel guilty, but this is reality that God sees all that we do. And as one who sees all that we do and cares deeply about our attitude, he says, when it comes to your conduct, at least in your attitude, wake up every day and say, God, with your help today, I'm going to do my best to be good. So when I'm adding up my IRS receipts or when I'm on the golf course and I'm looking at my language or when I'm tempted to look at a woman who's not my wife too long or whatever it might be, God, I'm going to do my best to watch my conduct as one who claims and is your follower. That's what God says should be a huge part of our attitude. That's what it means to think holy and to think with purity in mind. Now, as if this were not enough, I need you to consider what it might mean to have an, on our attitude to then relate well. I gotta tell you guys, this is actually, believe it or not, more challenging to me than the conduct piece. I mean, I've been a Christian now for almost 35 years. And I don't have my conduct down perfectly, but I, I got to tell you, most days, if I submit to God and walk with him, I can watch my P's and Q's, at least to the point that it pleases most of you, and I think uh, fairly well pleases God. But I got to tell you, to monitor how I relate each moment of each day is a huge challenge. And to think that God equates this with my holiness, with my purity, blows me away. That Larry Crabb, who's a dear friend of mine, puts it like this in a recent book that's coming out here soon. He allowed me to read the manuscript. It's a book on love, and he says that really the goal of our sanctification is that we place Christ on display in the way that we relate to others each moment of each day. Uh, this is about placing Christ on display in the way you relate to others. And I got to tell you, most people, most Christians today really don't have this on their radar, at least as far as holiness is concerned. But this is what the Bible says. We saw this earlier. So how you respond to your spouse or don't respond to your spouse, uh, that has to do with your holiness. How you relate to your kids, tied to your holiness. How you handle the service provider who frustrates you, it relates to your holiness. How you respond to that family member that drives you nuts, it's your holiness. Or that person in your small group that grates on you, do you have somebody like that? It's your holiness. You see, this is all part 
of our sanctification, what it means to think about what is pure. And some of you are going, what does this really mean? I mean, what's the barometer here, the standard? Boy, I'm glad you asked because the Bible's crystal clear in this one. Look at 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8. When Paul the Apostle was thinking about what it means to relate well, he said it this way. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoings, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. I have a friend who does something I think really gutsy, if not quite frankly, very guilt-producing every morning, and that's that he uh, takes this passage and he takes the word love out and he puts a blank there and he inserts his own name. So it would read like this, Jamie is patient, Jamie is kind, Jamie does not, I can't even go on and on, right? And, And he does that to remind himself precisely what's on the line when it comes to how we relate to those around us. And so how do we do this? How do we actually view others in such a way that we relate well to them? I was helped a while back by an idea shared by Marshall Shelley, who's the uh, editor of a Christian leadership journal, when he suggested, and I loved this, that the key to relating well lies in our choice to see others as what we might call beta Christians, or even beta people. And you're saying, well, what's that about? Uh, Abby, uh, hand me my phone here, would you? It's right there underneath my glasses case. I forgot to bring it up here. I, I don't bring my phone up on the stage for good reason. When I was in my first church, um, my first senior pastor in London, Ontario, I used to carry my phone in my coat pocket, and one day Neil called me on it and, uh, as a joke. And so uh, he lost his job and, uh, and stuff like that <laughs> and had to go to California, but we got him back. And so if you ever have used an iPhone or a computer or even a Samsung phone, something like that, you know that when they come out with new programs or new apps, they're, they're called the beta form of that program or app. And many times developers get a, a beta version of the program. Many times they even let end users like me download a beta form of a new program so I can check it out, see what new features they have, and, and try it out before the real or the final one comes out. And the idea behind a beta program is that we all understand it's not a finished product. Do you see where I'm going with this? We all understand that it's going to crash at times. We all understand it's going to have bugs. We all understand that it's not going to be perfect. So when you're using a beta program on here, you're much more forgiving than with the final product. And and it really is true. I've downloaded some beta programs at times or beta apps for my phone, and when it crashes or doesn't work, it's frustrating, but I go, hey, it's a beta one, so, you know, what's the big deal? Listen to what Shelley says in his blog article. He says, we will be more like Christ if we treat the people we live and work with each day as beta Christians. Like us, they are all a work in progress. They all need grace. None of them is perfect yet. And you see, I think he's exactly right. I think the key to relating well, because some of you, when we talk about this, go, I just don't relate well. I mean, it's just not my natural thing. I'm an introvert or I'm a man or whatever it might be. And you say, I just don't relate very well. And yet they really, the key to it is, is to just adjust your attitude and start seeing people around you as beta Christians, or if they're not Christians, just beta people. And it's amazing what will happen in the way you relate to them. Because when they let you down or when they get in your face or when they disappoint you or whatever it is, if your mindset is, hey, they're not perfect and I don't expect them to be, 
They're a work in progress in which God is doing something in them like he is me, and I need to chill out. It's amazing what that will do to the way that you relate to them. You'll be applying grace to their lives without even knowing it. Whatever is pure, the concept is about unstained, without defect, not mixed together, wholeness, integrity, and the attitude is that with God, I will be good and relate well. And before we wrap this up, I need to make one thing clear. Now, this is very important and core to all of these attitudes, especially this one here today. And that is that we all need to leave here in a few minutes and at our venues and campuses with this reality. Only God can empower you and me to successfully do this. Man, if you don't hear anything else today, please hear this. I said to you earlier, some of you are tempted to see what we're talking about today as awfully legalistic. You're going to be tempted to say, well, be good in my contact and relate well. And, you know, I thought it was grace and all that. Well, there is grace in all of this. And I'm going to show you this in a minute. But God does care about our conduct. He does care about our obedience. He does care about the relational fabric of our very lives. But he also knows that you can't do it on your own. Amen? It's like another run at that one. He also knows that you cannot do this on your own. Amen? Amen. And it really is true. And the reality is many Christians try to do it on their own, right? And I think that's why we have a big problem with this stuff today. Because we try to be good and we try to relate well on our own. And God says, hey, that's an adventure and missing the point. The reality is, as followers of him, we are to trust him daily for his provision of power and grace to be good and to relate well. And I had an amazing experience in my study this week with this exact point. Let me show you. As I was tracing this word holiness or purity, agnos, through the Old Testament, again, there's just five occurrences in the Old Testament, one of them is found in Proverbs 20, verse 9. And it comes out of nowhere. It's this left field use of hognos that initially confused me until I started to think about it. Let me, let me share with you. Look up here on the screen. Proverbs 29, it says, Who can say, I have made my heart pure, hognos? Who can say, I am clean from my sin? Hardly any use like that of this word in the New Testament. So let me ask you the $10 question. What's the answer to this question? Who can say, I have made my heart pure. Who can say I am clean from my sin? Anybody know what the answer is to that? No one. Somebody last night in the very first row here said it really out loud. It was great. She sitting next to her husband and said, who? I said, who can say it? She goes, no one. And I was like, exactly. <laughs> Romans 3 verse 12 says, there is no one who does good, not one. There is none righteous. Romans 3.23 would go on to say, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so the reality is, is that we, when we then hear this idea that, that I'm supposed to do good, we've got to say, well, I, I, who can say I made my heart pure? Who can say I'm clean from all my sin? That no one is. And so here's the deal. Our only hope to really do good and to really relate well must come from our salvation in Christ and it must come from the Holy Spirit who indwells us as believers and empowers us to live the Christian life. And I told you earlier, I had a, an experience with this because as soon as I was realizing all that this week, follow my thoughts here, I thought, well, where in the New Testament does it say that? And I thought of that famous passage that many of us have heard, that I can do all things through Christ, through Christ who gives me strength, or through God who gives me strength. Do you know where that verse is found? It's found in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. Now that's fascinating. 
Because here's what I think was almost going on in Paul the Apostle's mind when, again, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he was writing these verses. You got verse 8, where he challenges us to these four attitudes that really are hard to live, but, but are game changers in our Christian life. And then, I don't know if you've read it yet, but Wayne Grudem sent me a note on this the other day. Verse 9 goes on to say, Paul does, and the things that you've seen in me, these things imitate them. You know, I, I'm your example for this. So it's like a double whammy. Here's the eight attitudes you need to live. And by the way, I'm Paul the Apostle, imitate me. So you got to be believing that, like, the believers in Philippi were going, well, that's really hard. Like, eight attitudes and imitate Paul the apostle in our very lives. And so isn't it interesting that just four verses after that, Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's almost like he anticipated the question that we'd be asking, right? Which would be, how can we do this stuff? And the answer is, you can't but he can through you. Thomas Merton, in his famous book, The Seven-Story Mountain, at one point says this. He says, people have no idea what one saint can do, for sanctity is stronger than the whole of hell. Why is that important? Some of you came in here today, and you can't believe we're talking about doing good and relating well because your lives are, quite frankly, pretty beat up. And I get that. You feel like you're in hell. You feel like that the cards have been dealt against you, you're really hurting, you've had a hellacious week or month or even few years, and you're in church trying to find some help, and the pastor tells you to do good <laughs> and to relate well. And it almost feels like, you know, salt in a wound. I, I, I want to close by you seeing it a little bit differently, because though God has great compassion on your circumstances, and he has great compassion on the fact that you feel like you're in hell, Merton was right. Sanctity is stronger than the whole of hell. In other words, as God sanctifies you, as you do learn to function and breathe and be the follower of Jesus that he wants you to be, complete with obedience and doing good, and then learning to relate well, you know what you're going to find? Those reserves that you're looking for, that strength you're looking for, all of a sudden becomes more real. And you find that you thought the answer to your hell was maybe this road or that road, but really the answer to it lies in your sanctification. It lies in your holiness. It lies in your purity. It lies in you having an attitude that says every day, whatever is pure. I'm going to think about those things. And I now realize it means to think about doing good and monitoring my conduct. And it thinks about relating well. Because as John said, he who does not love does not know God. But he who does love has now seen and known the Father. Well, we, we do know God. And so as we start to exhibit these things in our daily lives, they actually don't know this guy. They become the healing agent that we've been looking for. We don't think that way, but it's true. That, that, that as we get other-centered, as we get other-focused, as we get God-obsessed in our lives— and even at times get our eyes off ourselves, that becomes the release from our hell that we've been looking for. Why? Because sanctity is stronger than the whole of hell. This stuff really works. We wouldn't be talking about it if it didn't. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. I thank you, God, that nine words in one verse, giving us eight attitudes, is so rich and so wonderful. And Lord, it's been a blast for me just to trace these words through the whole of the Old and New Testament and to plumb the depths of what they're really getting at. And so I pray, Father, that as we've looked at purity today and maybe even seen it in a little bit of a different light than many of us have, 
that God, this week, we would give cogent thought to our very lives, to our attitudes on what it means to do good and to relate well with only the power that you can give. Father, I do pray for those of us who might have come in here today kind of beat up, discouraged, maybe even hopeless. And I pray, God, that through the truthfulness of your word and the the love uh, that you offer us, that, God, we might leave here hopeful. And I pray this in Jesus' name. We all say together, Amen. amen.